Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Library. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, which means it is time for the next president. In this case, number 14, New Hampshire's native son, Franklin Pierce, which makes this week's book of the week, Franklin Pierce. Young Hickory of the Granite Hills by, what's his name, Roy Franklin Nichols. The accompanying cocktail was a little bit harder. There, there are no cocktails called Young Hickory, nor are there cocktails called Granite Hills. Googling Franklin Pierce cocktails just tells you that he was the drunkest president ever. I'm not sure what distinction that is. Um, and his last words in office allegedly were, well, there's nothing left to do but drink. Note that anecdote's purely from Google. That was not in the book. Now, I finally asked a friend of mine who lives in New Hampshire if there were any cocktails specific to New Hampshire, and he said, you can't go wrong with hard cider. But fuck me if the internet didn't disappoint there as well. I swear to God. It's like the internet was just trying to pretend like Pierce never existed, except as the drunkest president ever. There are several recipes for hard cider cocktails. None of them included amounts. They would say you need XYZ, but they wouldn't tell you you need four ounces of this or two ounces of that. So I finally just settled on angry spiced rum which is four ounces of angry orchard crisp apple one ounce spiced rum a half ounce of lime juice three quarters ounce of simple syrup and one teaspoon of allspice liqueur seriously i forgot the teaspoon oh yeah i'll just do a splash so let's do this franklin pierce was born november 23rd 1804 in hillsborough new hampshire his father was benjamin pierce and his mother was anna kendrick anna was benjamin pierce's second wife not that that necessarily matters um his first wife died i think in childbirth his father benjamin was a revolutionary war hero and he fought with washington and was very political so pierce was raised in a political family and i don't think we've really seen that up till now i mean they're they're you know most everybody you know, with the exception of Zachary Taylor, was a lawyer, but they weren't specifically raised in a political family. Pierce was. His family was very political. That's how he was raised. First with the Democratic-Republican Party, which was the party of Jefferson and Madison, and he stayed with that party pretty much throughout his life. I mean, when Monroe stepped down and John Quincy Adams stepped up, the entire family was outraged. They believed Jackson had been robbed. And so when Jackson, you know, formed the Democratic Party and became the first Democratic president four years later, Pierce was happy to vote for him and remained a lifelong Democrat. So his father, Benjamin, was not necessarily wealthy. All right? I mean, they weren't poor in the way that Millard Fillmore's family was poor, but they were not wealthy. But Benjamin Pierce absolutely believed in education and the value of an education. So he sent his young son to private school, boarding school, and ultimately he ended up going to Bowdoin, Bowdoin College, Bowdoin College, it's in Maine. Pierce was not the best of students. I mean, at first he was kind of, he kind of slacked off and was a bit lackluster until the end of his second year when they released the grades. Now, back then, grades were released publicly. They basically just did a list and you found your name and that was your class ranking. He was like at the very bottom of the list and this seemed to galvanize him. And he started studying and became much better and ultimately ended up graduating two years later, fifth in his class. Hello again, friend. You're back. So he graduates fifth in his class. Now, while he's in college, he formed several lifelong friendships, including one with author Nathaniel Hawthorne. So, 
I know you don't think of all these people as being contemporaries, but they very much were. And Nathaniel Hawthorne was a very good friend of Pierce's. And like I said, except for all of our other, except for Zachary Taylor, he jumped into law school like all of our other presidents or the 19th century version of it. And he became a lawyer. Oh my God, this is enormous. Uh, and he was pretty successful as a lawyer. Um, he, you know, he, he did the circuits. He was well, well, well liked and well respected. And then he eventually jumped into local politics, serving in New Hampshire Congress for four years before making a jump to national politics when he was voted into the House of Representatives in 1833. And he served nationally from 1833 to 1842, both as a House of Representative and as a Senate. Anyone else to spice from? Okay. He was very much a staunch Democrat through all of this. I mean, he never broke party ranks. He, he voted the way he was told to vote, did everything right from the perspective of a party member. Uh, he was prone to impassioned outbursts. So I think the one that made me kind of roll my eyes and go, oh God, this guy, was as a young member of the House, he said something to the effect of, there was not one in 500 in New Hampshire who sought abolition. And the abolitionists in Congress, and, and this was during the time when they were attempting to do the gag rule, so he, he was kind of in opposition, like very much in opposition to John Quincy Adams, unlike Miller Fillmore. I believe I corrected myself last month on that. Yeah, I did. The abolitionists, and I don't remember which one, brought forth a copy of a New Hampshire paper, which was called the Herald of Freedom, and this ream of petitions that had been signed by local people numbering far more than one in 500. And Pierce got flustered and he responded that the paper was an incendiary rag and when he said not more than one in 500, he meant legal voters, not women and children. I was very disappointed in New Hampshire's native son over that one. I, mean, I guess, I guess live free or die only meant registered voters in his world. I have decided that fresh lime and lemon actually goes way better than the bottled lime juice. I mean, it's from concentrate. Allegedly, there's no added sugars, but it's just better fresh. So we're going to squeeze my own goddamn limes here. Now, he did learn from that episode. He was quite capable of learning from his mistakes. And um, when he was later serving in the Senate, even though he was a junior member of that body, I mean, he was hands down like one of the youngest senators, he cautioned against saying or printing anything against abolitionism that could come back to bite the Senate in the butt. And they ignored him because he was a junior member, but he did learn. And I forget what the bill was, but it did come back and bite them in the butt. He was vindicated, so there's that. Now, he married his wife, Jane Appleton, in 1834 when he was still a member of Congress. They were not necessarily the best of matches. I mean, they maintained they were a love match. Maybe they were. But, I mean, they, they came from some pretty different backgrounds. I mean, his was kind of humble. I mean, like I said, not as humble as Miller Fillmore, but not exactly wealthy either. I mean, he, his parents had to work for everything. His father ended up going into politics himself. Her family is not necessarily political, although they tended towards the Whig party, not the Democrats. So we have the first um, cross-political match here. And she was very religious. He was not raised religious. They insisted they were in love. They married. They eventually had three sons. The firstborn would die within a week of being born. Not uncommon. The secondborn would die at four years old of typhus, but the thirdborn, little Benny, was doing quite well and thriving in childhood. He was very much the apple of his mother's eye. Now, shortly after uh, Benny was born, Pierce retired from Congress and determined to be a lawyer at home. And I think part of this was because Jane was unhappy in Washington. She, she hated the political life. And so under the theory of keeping the wife happy, he decided he was just going to retire from Congress and, and not be political anymore. And he stuck with that. I mean, he, he truly did. I mean, he, he was political in New Hampshire. 
he was the, the head of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire, and he was very effective in this role. Uh, he, he whipped the party into shape. He chased out the people who were not, you know, towing the party line. The, the only separation they had during this time was when the Mexican-American War started in 1846. Now, prior to this, President Polk had been so impressed with Pierce that he wanted Pierce to be his attorney general. And Pierce turned it down because he knew that would make Jane unhappy. But when the Mexican-American War started, he was called to military service and he went and he served with some distinction. Now, now I say he served with distinction and he did, all right? But there was a charge of cowardice that came out of his time during the Mexican-American War. And let me explain what happened because I, I do think that that charge was unfair. I don't believe he was a coward. Um, what happened is during a military charge, his horse stumbled and the horse ended up breaking his leg. And in the fall, President Pierce was thrown like junk first into the pommel of the horse and bruised his pelvis. He, he passed out from pain, which was not known, right? When his aide or whoever it was came upon him, so he passed out, they, they were like, oh, he passed out from fear. Well, it wasn't fear. It, it was pain. Uh, I think that even women can probably appreciate the pain of having your pelvis bruised against the pommel of a whore, of, of a saddle. If you've ever ridden, kind of would really hurt. I, I don't blame the man for passing out. But that charge of cowardice did come back during his own presidential run. Again, I don't think it was a fair charge. Hmm. Hmm. All right, so a splash because I don't have a teaspoon up here. A little more splash. Following Fillmore's relatively bland administration, the Democrats were hoping to regain, reclaim power. And during the 1852 convention, they could not decide on a candidate. Several names were put forth, but nobody was really popping out. And they almost ended up breaking up without nominating anybody. Something like 50 rounds of polling, which is an absurd amount of polling. Pierce has settled on as a compromise candidate for 1852. Not sure how I feel about shaking a carbonated beverage, but here we go. Whoa! Said to shake it up. It really did. It says shake it. There we go. Oh my God. I knew I should have distrust that. It says shake and strain. Shake and strain. I shook it and the bitch exploded on me. Well then. That's why I have things like washcloths. Well, that was exciting. Maybe don't shake. Maybe I shouldn't have shaken it over rocks. You know, to be fair, it does not say shake over rocks. So maybe it was the rocks that caused the explosion. So Pierce is settled on as a compromise candidate. And he tells his wife, who disliked the political fear and hated Washington, um, but he tells her he's being called on to serve. Doesn't tell her that he, he had, in fact, kind of sought this position out because he, he loved politics. She did not. And rather than coming to any kind of a compromise, he just didn't tell her. This comes back to be a problem later. Um, but he sells it to her by telling her that, that him being president will open a lot of doors for young Benny in his future. Those political connections will be lifelong benefits to him. So she tentatively hops on board the Pierce for President train, which lasts exactly until January 6, 1853. So Pierce wins the election. All right. And as they're doing kind of a, a congratulatory tour of the Northeast, the train they're on derails, an actual train derails, not the Pierce for President train, the actual train derails, and Benny is killed. Now, the book just says he was killed, but during the same internet search while I was looking fruitlessly for a cocktail, uh, the internet says that Benny was practically beheaded in front of his parents during this derailment. So, 
yeah that's quite good yeah and it seems like Jane never really forgave Pierce especially when she finds out that he actively did campaign that it wasn't just being called upon to serve but that he really did seek this out um, she, she very much blamed him for Benny's death because if he hadn't run they wouldn't have been on that train Benny would not have died in that way um, but in the 19th century you didn't just divorce in the wake of familial tragedy you learned to live with each other again but for I think it was like the first six months or a year that Pierce was in office Jane did not live at the White House she, she preferred to remain in secluded mourning and at the time on the plus side this wouldn't this didn't arouse any kind of a comment I mean today it would be all over the news and oh my god why aren't they living together I mean never mind the tragedy that just happened but back then it was seen as as understandable right her her only like surviving child had just been killed in front of her in a pretty horrific fashion and as a result of this she she became quite sickly and she never quite recovered from the tragedy now, as for Pierce this seems to have cost him his political mojo and, and he never quite learned how to recognize from this point forward political friend from foe and I think the sole exception to this was his cabinet who for the first time ever actually remained unchanged for all four years of his presidency I mean the same cabinet that he sat when he was elected that he got confirmed remained with him all four years there was no changeover so that's pretty um, unusual now he had uh, William Marcy who was Secretary of State Caleb Cushing was the Attorney General Jefferson Davis that's right the future president of the Confederate States of America Jefferson Davis was uh, uh, Pierce's Secretary of War and Pierce delegated a lot in fact he ended up being less the the chief executive and more of just one of the executive party he, he wasn't he delegated that much so he, he pretty much left those decisions up to his people not necessarily a good thing Marcy was a bit of, of a clusterfuck a secretary of state his entire diplomatic corps was grossly incompetent they they cost us Britain as an active ally we kind of went into ultra neutrality with Britain and we tried very hard to buy Cuba from Spain and Cuba was having none of it because the the offers were so ham-fisted they, they just weren't having any part of it but his Secretary of Treasury James Guthrie was pretty competent he actually audited the federal treasury not not the fed fed doesn't exist until 1913 but the federal treasury did get audited he brought the books current he balanced the budget and paid off like half the national debt so that was pretty solid now while not as isolated and hated as John Tyler was Pierce was pretty isolated from Congress he didn't have the points of contact that his predecessors had had and this left him out on a limb when Congre when uh, Congress passed such controversial acts as the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which repealed the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and which Pierce promptly signed into law, having been convinced by Democratic Party members that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. Now, once a law is passed by Congress and then signed by the President, it, it pretty much becomes the law unless it's challenged in the courts, okay? So when the Missouri Compromise was, was signed into law by then President James Monroe, it became the law of the land. And it was not, in fact, unconstitutional. It was constitutionally passed. But in 1854, the Democrats had a majority over everything. They had the House, they had the Senate, they had the presidency. And so they bullhorned through this act that, that repealed the Missouri Compromise. So, the Missouri Compromise I have I'm quite sure I've mentioned this a couple of times in previous ones because it 
was kind of one of those defining acts that helped contribute to the Civil War four years later. The Missouri Compromise of 1820 said that slavery would only be legal in states below the 36-30 parallel. Okay, that's that infamous Mason-Dixon line, right? So basically, Missouri and the South was legal. North of Missouri, slavery was illegal. And the Democrats were totally cool with that line when it came to Texas being allowed to join the Union, right? But with the 1850 Compromise, which allowed all of California, even the part south of that 3630, to be allowed entrance to the Union as a free state, and the territories of New Mexico and Utah, which are also south of that designated line, were allowed popular sovereignty, meaning rather than being designated slave territories automatically, the 1850 Compromise allows those territories to choose for themselves whether or not they wanted slavery within their borders. And at this point, the Democrats realize they are losing the popular war. Shocking. This causes the Democrats to freak the fuck out. They are losing their power base if those states choose to go free, then they're not going to have the Democratic majority that will back property rights. There's a reason for those quotes. I'm going to get to that. Damn it, I wish I had a towel in here now. My elbow's getting sticky from the explosion. So in 1854, Democrats, in reaction to all this, determined that the 1820 Compromise was in fact unconstitutional and repealed it with the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which allowed popular sovereignty in both of those states, which enraged the abolitionists as both of those states were north of the designated parallel. And at this time we have Kansas was almost exactly the borders it has now, but Nebraska was essentially from the northern Kansas border all the way up to Canada. So it was a huge territory, not quite comparable to Texas, but very close. And so that would have, of course, balanced out the whole hey, free versus slave thing, right? And the stage is set for bleeding Kansas. Now, incidentally, the voters didn't just roll into Kansas and start throwing down. Okay, okay, they kind of did roll into Kansas and start throwing down, but they did more than that. The 1850 midterms saw an enormous turnover in the House of Representatives, with Pierce's nominal allies losing out there and in governorships throughout the United States. And since at this time, the senators were chosen by the states individually, not by the voters of the states, but by the governors of the states, that cost him the Senate as well. So now we have a president who's dealing with a wholly hostile Congress, not just one who thinks he's irrelevant, but an entirely hostile Congress. So the voters at this time were well aware of and thoroughly unimpressed with the Democrats' chicanery. It's too bad. People today care more about winning than keeping their Congress critters honest. Because that's how you make change, right? You vote the fuckers out. They do shit like that, and you're like, ta, you've, uh, <laughs> you've lost our votes, pal. Now, the fundamentals of leading Kansas are this. With the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Democrats expected squatters and speculators to flood those territories, resulting in several additional slave-owning states, which would help balance out Democratic power in the House and ultimately the Senate. What actually happened is the abolitionists took that act kind of personal-like, and they flooded Kansas in equal numbers, resulting in bloody, violent conflict, which the president did not seem to know how to handle. I don't think he ever actually sent troops, although it was certainly recommended, but I think he managed to hold back on that. What he did do is he sent a variety of territorial governors, 
with ex who experienced varying degrees of success. But Kansas remained in turmoil throughout the Civil War. I mean, it was a genuine clusterfuck. Because even back then, Democrats just couldn't give up a bad idea. To which I mean slavery. They, they, slavery was a bad idea then, remains a bad idea today. Rather than just admitting that the rest of the country was done with their quaint, outdated, racist ideology, the Democrats just kept doubling down with stupidity. And to be honest, very much like today, the Republicans kept rising to the bait, which is why Kansas started to bleed. Right. The, the violence of Kansas was very useful fuel to the Democrats in 1856 because they painted the Republicans, the abolitionists, as the ones who were pushing this violence and creating the problems. As least in 1856, the Democrats could pivot on their political candidate. Now, this would never happen today, right? They would never, uh, trust me, in, what's our next presidential election, 2024? I mean, we're going to have one of two things, right? Biden will run for re-election and he'll get the backing of the Democratic Party because, hey, he's already won once. Or he'll determine and make a very public speech about how he's ready to retire and he will not be running and he's passing the torch. But it'll be a very public, open display of solidarity behind whatever Biden decides to do. In 1856, the Democrats did something that I believe had not been done yet. Yes, pretty sure this is the first time it happened. They did not renominate an incumbent for the presidency. Now that they had had presidents who said, I'm not gonna run again, right? Like Polk, Polk had said, no, I'm only gonna be one term. Boom, full stop. And he kept to that word, didn't run again, no problem. But here we have an incumbent who wants to run again. He was very keen for another four years and the Democrats said, nope, we don't think you got the poll. We're going to go with Buchanan. And James Buchanan was nominated for the 1856 ticket. And because of how violent Kansas had gotten and the successful play on the fears of that violence, isn't that ironic? Buchanan won. And Pierce was retired from the national stage. Now, in his time in office, Pierce had disposed of over 93 million acres of public land, mostly through sale, and he used that money to pay out down the public debt. All right, he negotiated treaties with 52 different Indian tribes. He reduced the national debt by 50%. And while the Democrats lost big during the midterms, when Buchanan came in, they made up those losses and they again had control of everything. Um, his foreign policy was a dud because Marcy, a Secretary of State, with his incompetent diplomatic corps, it was a mess. So relations were pretty much non-existent with Great Britain by the end of the term. And then, of course, we have Kansas. He had also had a couple of problems with other territories, like Minnesota he had some hiccups with. The big one was Utah. He, he tried to um, replace Brigham Young as the governor of Utah. Young had been installed by Fillmore. And the uh, Mormons were having none of that. They made sure that Young stayed in place. So I'm like, hmm, kind of want to know a little more about Desiree now. Desiree? Utah. Yeah, it eventually became Utah. But Kansas was the big, the big cock up of his career, right? But one thing that is made pretty clear throughout this book is that Pierce believed firmly in property rights. That was, that was the big push of the Democratic Party, right? Property rights. And that seems like a mighty fine principle to get behind. I mean, hell, I think that's one of the platforms of, of the Libertarian Party is property rights. The big key difference is the Libertarians don't think that people are property. Uh, Pierce did. He, he 
absolutely included slaves as property. He did not see them as people who could ever appreciate freedom, so why should they have it? I mean, no joke, that's an actual quote from the book, quote, he could not understand how the people of the United States would tolerate this attempt to butcher their own race for the sake of inflicting, inflicting emancipation upon the four million Negroes who were in no sense capable of profiting by freedom, end quote. Actual quote from the book. So, yeah, property included people for him, and that's why he is at the very bottom of my list. Okay, not the very bottom. He's still just a step above Jackson. I'll get to why in a little bit. Now, the above was how Pierce felt about the Civil War. Okay. Now, he did not approve of secession, but once the deed was done, he did not believe we should force the South to stay. And when Lincoln fired on Fort Sumter, he basically confirmed his belief that the Republicans were violent people. But then the South retaliated by marching on Washington, and he thought the South should have just let it go and should have just maintained their borders. Um, he, he didn't approve of the Civil War. Which is fair. I mean, Fillmore didn't really approve of it either. But Fillmore was never questioned by Secretary of State Seward as being a possible, you know, infiltrator, spy, traitor to the nation. Um, Pierce was. Uh, during the first part of the Civil War, he traveled to the Western territories, meaning I think he got as far as Detroit, and made a speech there about how, basically what I just said, about he couldn't see why this was necessary, because why would we bother inflicting emancipation on people. I mean, my God, why would we grant freedom to people in the land of the free? But that somebody made note of that, sent a letter off to Seward, and Seward questioned him, hey, are you a traitor? And he took offense to that, and that's fair, because he, while he certainly comes across as an idiot, you know, 180 years later? 70. 170 years later, he sounds like a bleeding moron. But he still had the right to freedom of speech and he certainly had the right to freedom of opinion and those were his rights to be an idiot. Now it's not how he said it to Seward. He didn't say, hey, I have the right to be an idiot, but it's there. He had that right. So there we go. Um, mostly he, I mean, so he made it through the civil war despite having decried it, hated by some, mostly just ignored. Uh, Jane died on December 2nd, 1863 and his lifelong friend Nathaniel Hawthorne helped lay her to rest. And then a few months later, Hawthorne died in 1864, but not before dedicating his book, Our Old Home, to his lifelong friend Franklin Pierce. Now, this is just a slight aside because this was quite controversial. Pierce's opinions on the war were known as being that they were not popular. Hawthorne's publisher begged him, don't do this, don't dedicate this book to Pierce, <laughs> because he's, you know, not an appreciated figure at this point in time. And Hawthorne did it anyways, because love him or hate him, Pierce had that kind of character to create these lifelong bonds with people. And that should be admired. There's something good about him to be able to create those lifelong friendships, right? Pierce himself died October 8, 1869, and is buried in Concord, New Hampshire. Now, generally history has cast him as weak-willed and incompetent administrator. And I'm not entirely sure that's fair. I, I don't like the man. It is awfully hard to find anything to admire in someone who thinks half of humanity can't benefit from freedom. I disagree with the Democrats and the Republicans. They both seem to think that freedom is for me, but not for thee. You cannot abide hypocrisy. I mean, some might say that that level of mindless 
maybe even slavish obedience to party politics in the Democratic Party has only gotten exponentially worse since Pierce's tenure in the White House. But I have a feeling, like, having all of his children predecease him and his wife turn his back on him caused him to question and doubt his own abilities, and he subsequently lost his way and spent most of his time delegating rather than leading. And while the book does not specifically cover him being the drunkest president ever, it does mention periods of drunkenness. I'm not sure if he actually drank all that much or if it, he was just somebody who could not hold his liquor. And so it tended to hit him harder than most. I mean, gods know I have the liver of an Irish barmaid and the tolerance of a Viking raider. Not everybody does. And uh, when he drank, it tended to be a very public display of drunkenness. And his friends had to nurse him through like days, days of hangovers because he would just get that sick. So you could call it an allergy. It's just intolerance. And it didn't help that his wife was part of the temperance movement. He nominally was, but since he did drink, clearly wasn't a fanatical about the temperance movement. But that can only have been an additional source of tension in what was already not an ideal pairing between the two, and probably contributed to his overall ineffectualness as president. This book was a bit of a beast. I mean, it covered the key moments in the presidency, but seemed to have a lot of extraneous information, like, you know, who Pierce's political enemies were in detail. Uh, names that I've never heard of before and will likely never hear again because I will not be repeating this feat with members of Congress. I, I will not be doing that. Um, the reason I will not be doing that, I, maybe with specific members of Congress like um, Henry Clay or John Calhoun, but I mean, Jesus, according to like the National Archives, there have been 12,421 members of Congress some of them just in the House, some of them in the Senate, some of them, like Pierce, served in both. I have enough books to read. I, I don't need to add another 12,000 books to my library covering each member of Congress. And this book, but this book was written in 1932, so maybe then it still contained, it was considered highly relevant. Sorry, I literally couldn't really find anything more recent than that. I mean, Pierce just doesn't have the panache of a flashier Jackson, Lincoln, or Roosevelt, either Roosevelt. So there just have not been that many books written about him. But I mean, for a book written in 1932, it moved along fairly well. It kept me interested and in kind of wanting to know if there was more to Pierce than a lasting legacy of leading Kansas and drunken president ever. Sadly, it seems there is not. Uh, I am keeping him at the bottom of my list, still above Jackson and actually above Fillmore too. Part of that is pity. I, I do think the loss of his, his children broke him and contributed to his ineffectualness. And I mean, Fillmore encouraged the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. And while leading Kansas sucked, there is also an element that large parts of America just likes to fight with each other. And really, we're a contentious people. Like groundskeeper Willie says, we're just contentious. I mean, Jesus, just check out Twitter sometime if you don't believe me. <laughs> And also these tragedies made him seek party approval and he didn't have the strength of a t of John Tyler to just tell his party to fuck off this is wrong all right i what what is it saying weak men create hard times well hard times are coming that's all i've got for this week guys um next week i'm doing the book on um the new york times and all the times they have really screwed the pooch and contributed to our current clusterfuck of domesticity.
I can't wait to read that book. I've been looking forward to this one. I almost moved it up past the next CM book, but I'm like, no, 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 it's already on the schedule. Anyways, I'll see you guys later. Bye.